0: Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we're thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is approximately 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get important information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing crucial legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other important stakeholders to positively address the issues in question and know how to get a greater level of understanding of those issues. So let's get started and thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Legal One podcast. My name is David Nash. I'm the director of our Legal One program, uh, and very happy to have with me for this episode, George Guy. George is the principal of Rosa International Middle School in the Cherry Hill School District, and has done a great deal of work with us at Legal One over the years as we look to address issues of implicit bias, microaggression, and discrimination in our schools. Um, That is the focus of today's episode. We're going to be looking at legal issues related to implicit bias and microaggression. Uh, Before I introduce George, I do want to uh, recognize our wonderful sponsor for this series of podcast episodes. Arthur J. Gallagher, Risk Management Service, does a tremendous amount of work with us at Legal One um, and has sponsored this five-part series that we are doing addressing equity, uh, schools, and the law. Uh, So, George, thank you so much for being with us for this episode. Thank you for having me, Dave. So, in uh, today's episode, we are going to focus on how we can identify, recognize, and address uh, some of the challenges that come um, in regards to the implicit biases that uh, we carry, um, in regards to microaggressions that might occur in, in our schools. So, of course, before we uh, dive into the details of this discussion, it's probably a good idea for us to have a common language. Uh, so let me just take a moment to talk a little bit about you know, what we mean by implicit bias and microaggression, and then talk about the legal framework that we want to keep in mind. So when we're thinking about implicit biases, uh, you know, basically those are the attitudes or stereotypes uh, that we have without our conscious knowledge. And I think it's important to recognize that we all have implicit biases. Um, It's part of how we organize the world around us and make sense of that world. Uh, So it's not unusual uh, for any of us to have implicit biases. I don't think it's anything that we should be defensive about, but it's critical that we understand those implicit biases, understand the impact they can have on the way we interact with others, and the potential negative impact that implicit biases can have if we don't fully um, understand and address the underlying issues related to those biases. So uh, it's an important concept for us to understand. Another concept that we're going to talk about today is uh, the concept of microaggressions. Uh, so um, when we think about microaggressions, uh, you know, we think about brief commonplace, daily, verbal, behavioral, and environmental indignities um, that may occur, whether they're intentional or unintentional. And they really are communicating hostile, derogatory, um, or negative slights and insults uh, that are directed um, at an individual or group uh, based on some particular characteristic, whether that's race, ethnicity, gender, religion, disability. Uh, So it's very important that we understand that those aggressive acts sometimes occur uh, without intent, without our knowledge, um, but we need to raise our awareness and understanding so that we understand uh, when those microaggressions are occurring and understand how to address those microaggressions. Certainly um, on the positive side, there are also microaffirmations um, and we can think about small acts, whether they're public or private, Um, That also might be unconscious, but can be very effective ways of communicating uh, gestures of inclusion and caring, um, or even just graceful acts of listening um, and taking the time to understand a different perspective. Um, So those are core concepts that we want to understand. As we think about those concepts, we do want to think about the legal framework that schools have to work within. The New Jersey law against discrimination um, is one of the broadest anti-discrimination laws in the nation. Um, It includes strong protections for both adults and students in our schools um, and in uh, other aspects of our society as well, of course. Um, And it makes sure that we are not discriminating based on factors like race, ethnicity, religion, disability, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, um, and a long list of other characteristics. Um, It builds on protections that we also have under federal law and other state laws. Uh, So there is a broad um, system of protections that are in place under state or federal law. When we think about how those laws might be violated, oftentimes uh, we tend to think about purposeful, intentional acts of discrimination uh, where we're singling out somebody because of a protected class and knowingly causing harm. And certainly uh, that is covered under our anti-discrimination laws. But we also have these more insidious, um, subtle, unintentional forms of discrimination that can cause as much or even more harm sometimes. So George, let me bring you into this conversation. Um, Sometimes these are difficult concepts for uh, us to wrap our arms around. The fact that we might be engaging in harmful acts of discrimination without any bad intent. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that concept of unintentional harm and how we can raise an awareness about um, implicit bias and microaggressions?
1: Yeah, thanks, Dave. And uh, we appreciate the common language around implicit bias and microaggressions. When I think about implicit bias, I'm automatically drawn to three types of uh, implicit bias. When we talk about uh, halo and horns effects, especially in pre-K to 12 spaces, um, when we see children or adults act a certain way, um, and that way is affirming in a typically behaviorally appropriate way, we automatically give those uh, individuals, whether they are students, staff, family, communities, uh, a halo um, type of understanding that they are, they're in line with our values and beliefs, they're doing the quote-unquote right things, but then when those, um, students, staff, family members, or community members are in dissonance with our values and beliefs, we tend to put the horns effect into place, and what the research is showing us is once we've identified those individuals subconsciously within either halo or horns, It is hard to see them outside of those spaces. So if we see, um, if I see Dave, and all I see of Dave is that negative interaction that we had um, over a student. Um, that we just couldn't agree on as a staff member, or if I see Dave as a parent um, who we just had just not a great interaction about um, homework assignment or content or um, an understanding of how, you know, Dave was, Dave's child was treated, then I automatically assign horns and that bias will carry through with me on every future interaction, and I'll assign that kind of horns effect to that individual, and I will kind of crowd out the opportunities to not see them in a different light. That's why halo and horns effects and the understandings of them in regards to implicit bias is so important. And that's why we really have to intentionally come to every interaction as it is a new interaction. We have to be aware of our halo and horns biases that exist. And when I come to Dave, no matter what that interaction was yesterday, I have to be able to know I had that interaction with him yesterday, but that horns effect consciously or subconsciously is there, but that's not the subtotal of who Dave is. And we do that in a a number of of, of different ways. Some work around cultural proficiency talks about uh, these zones that we can be in where people are uh, actually working to be culturally proficient, but at the same time, um, maybe five to 10 minutes later, they can be at cultural deficit, you know? So we're not the same person at, at the same time every time, you know? Uh, So I think it is important that when we come to those interactions, we need to have a fresh start and kind of look at ourselves um, and be aware specifically when it comes to those horns effects with individuals, whether they're students, whether they're staff members, whether they're family members, whether they're community members so that we're coming fresh and understanding that that halo interact or that halo interaction wasn't the sum total of who they are and that horns interaction is not the sum total of who they are so that we are not finding ourselves giving in to those unintentional slights which are microaggressions at that point Uh, And we're really listening with with an understanding that their values and beliefs are different than ours, and that ultimately, they want what's best. The student wants to learn, the staff member wants to engage with you so that you both can collectively work to support students And the parent wants what's best for their child and the community member wants what's ultimately best for the school, because that's going to enhance the community. So I think that is one really, really important point that we need to think about as it relates to implicit bias leading into microaggressions.
0: So it's really a great way to set the stage for this conversation. Um, You know, we often have a tremendous amount of information in our schools as we are addressing students um, and parents and, and families. Uh, so you know, students uh, have a uh, record that they bring with them an academic record, sometimes a disciplinary record um, that um, accompanies that student as they move up through a school district, as they move into a district from a prior district. Can you talk about the responsible use of that information? It's not as if we should ignore, the prior information that a student is bringing with them. So how do we make sure that as school leaders and educators and others in our schools, we're using that information responsibly um, without having it lead to uh, negative implicit biases?
1: Yeah, I think think that's important. I think, you know, one of the things that I learned from you, Dave, or relearned from you was about how the law has changed with regards to harassment, intimidation, and bullying. And now if students have... um, Uh, have harassment intimidation and bullying investigations founded uh, three times it's up to the school and the school district to make a plan for those students, so I think it's important when we're making those types of plans for students that we're looking at the whole child at that point. Certainly, we're going to look at the patterns of harassment, intimidation, and bullying and try to address that, but we should be looking at our student assistance counselors, our guidance counselors, our administrators, our teaching teams, and then bringing in our parents to be able to talk about what those patterns were and to be able to try to provide supports for the student so that they aren't uh, falling into those patterns again, so that we're proactive and preemptive in supporting them. I love what the state is doing because it forces us to get the families involved as well. And we always talk about student engagement, but we cannot do those things if we're coming up with this plan for George and we have all these people, our guidance counselors, our student assistance counselors, administrators, you have their team of teachers um, and you don't bring in their parent or guardians to be able to say, this is what we talked about with George, These were the patterns that we saw. These are the plans from a behavioral standpoint that we're going to put in place. And we need your help to be able to um, tell us, number one, are we on the right path? You know, because you know your child better than we do. Yeah, You're your first, you're your child's first teacher. And we as the school need to be able to understand that and value that. I think that's been a, a concern Um, in pre-K to 12 education. We say that we understand that, but we don't value that and we don't bring that um, parent or guardian along board to partner with us. So asking that parent or guardian to give a blessing or an okay to this plan or tell us where we may be um, you know, going awry and then bring them on board to be a partner. And then the follow through, um, are we monitoring that plan? Are there some deficits? Um, because if George is 11, George is not gonna be the same he was as, as 12. And there are some things for 11 to 14 year olds in my space in the middle era, the research shows us From a brain development standpoint, this is going to be the most growing they will do in three years. So those we have to be able to understand those social emotional learning shifts. We have to understand those um, physiological and mental shifts, and we have to be able to uh, be preemptive, be supportive, understanding that the record is what it is, come up with a plan, and then get true family engagement and support and um, agency from that parent and from that student to be able to kind of move forward uh, within within that space. I think that that is so important because HIV could shift us right back into the Horns Effect, right? Yeah. If that happened and now we're making the plan, we have already from a bias standpoint um, made some assumptions Um, And then the teachers who have that student, it's the beginning of September, so it's the beginning of the school year, they see that information, they're being brought in on this plan, and they're already making um, uh, horns assumptions, which are going to lead to implicit bias and microaggressions. They're going to be side conversations that are going to be had about George, maybe even in George's presence. Um, there are going to be um, presumptions made if George isn't in the same spot that he needs to be at with your other typically developing students, and maybe snide comments. Those are the microaggressions that people don't even know that they're taking from the record that is amounting to the horns effect. And that child is internalizing those things. And what happens when that child goes home and says, you know, Mr. Nash said this and it really caught me off guard and made me feel like, you know, the mistakes that I had made in the past, bringing to the surface again, and I'm really trying to work through those. And so, so now when you do come to the plan with, you have an upset child and an upset family member, and they're not in a position to partner with you, and you've got to do trust building all over again. So I think that that is absolutely imperative that, you know, we start the year off, it's timely that we have this podcast, that we start the year off with those plans, with engagement, um, with the student and the family, but understanding that the horns effect, certainly with the record around harassment, intimidation, and bullying and planning uh, interventions can lead to microaggressions, which can lead to disaffection of that student, that parent, and a lot of work that if you're a school administrator or a teacher um, that you're gonna have to re-put in to try and build some some trust or rebuild some trust that may have been lost.
0: Yeah, those are uh, wonderful points. And I do wanna drive home uh, what you uh, mentioned about working with parents and guardians. Uh, Not only is it a best practice, but New Jersey law makes clear that we must do that. So for example, If we have a student who we are suspending for a second time in any school year, we must work with the parent or guardian um, to get to the underlying causes and um, understand what might be driving that behavior. If we have to do a student intervention plan for somebody who has engaged in three acts of bullying, we must work with the parent or guardian on that issue as well. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the danger of just focusing on a deficit-based model when we are working with a student um, and missing the opportunity to identify and build on a student's strengths and assets?
1: Yeah, I think you bring up a, a valuable point. I mean, deficit is is everywhere, and we really should be looking at student capacity. I think the the opportunity to find capacity really delves into how we are relating with students. One of the things that I've worked on with my staff and and other staffs is we do something at the beginning of the school year and the beginning of every new marking period called the two to ten rule. So we take Um, Two minutes in our advisory programs, we're fortunate to have a 35-minute advisory period. At least two days out of that four-day cycle, we have those kids to ourselves. We take kids, uh, and we start with disaffected kids that outwardly could look like they are either at academic or behavioral or attendance uh, deficit or they could be at deficit because they have an individual education plan or they're a part of our intervention referral services or they have a 504. And two days out of that four day cycle, we take two minutes for 10 school days to talk to them about whatever they wanna talk about. And if they don't wanna talk, then that's a long 120 seconds of silence. But we teach and train our staffs when we do this that it's not your job to bring up the topic, it's their job to bring up the topic. And the richness around the whole child, we always talk about the whole child at that point, you get an opportunity as a staff member to learn so many things in that 10 school days for those two minutes. And you're able to capitalize on the richness of the wholeness of that child, whether it's the video games that they've been playing in, they just joined esports. Uh, They are swimming, the basketball tournament, Um, there is a loved one at home that is sick that they're unsure about, you're able to continue that connection and expand upon that connection and then link it to value in social studies, science, mathematics, ELA and your encore and special area classes, physical education, um, whether or not your advisory program deals with uh, social emotional learning and you're able to link it in that way, that's a sure way to be able to bring about more capacity because you have to learn relationally about who your children are outside of those contents to be able to make the content more meaningful, you know, we're always saying, so what? And so if you learn the wholeness with the two minutes, 10 school days, then you are you and you and you capitalize off of what you learn, not just, oh, I just did this as a practice, but you capitalize on the wholeness of what you've learned about that child. You're able to expand upon that. You're able to reach out and connect with their families in different ways because you know richer, deeper um, aspects of who they are. The trust that you might that that may have been broken previously because of interactions that you've had with them, maybe disciplinary or not, it begins to be reformed, and and we want that with all students in pre K to 12 spaces. So I think that's one way. That's that that doesn't cost anybody any money, Dave, I mean we're not going out and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on consultants at this point. Um, But this, if we do that at the beginning of every marking period with different students, we get a chance to find out who they are relationally and we can capitalize off of the different capacities that they're bringing to our classroom settings, and then expand upon those and share those, you know, with our colleagues and and with their families
0: as well. It's a wonderful set of examples that you gave, and you know, it's amazing how much we can leverage in two minutes. And, and finding um, that small amount of time and signaling to a student that this time is worth it, and we want to to learn more about you. Um, I think that sends a very valuable message. So I think that's a a great um, example uh, for other school districts to think about. Let me ask you um, about some of the challenges that come with implicit bias uh, when it comes to just looking at student appearance and the inordinate amount of time that school officials spend addressing issues such as dress code.
1: Yeah, Dave. You and I have, have talked about this and, and presented on this. Uh, you know, Cherry Hill Public Schools last December um, created a dress code or implemented a dress code. We really didn't create it. We didn't. We didn't um, create the. We we didn't do anything new. We went to Portland Public Schools and really took their dress code. And the and the dress code took um, that from that Portland um, and the National Organization of Women in, in Oregon. Um, put together, really addressed um, females and the oversexualization of the female body in pre-K to 12 spaces and um, uh, historically underserved uh, demographic groups. So African-American and, and uh, Latinx students, specifically males, when we look at hats, when we look at hoodies and things of that nature. I think, you know, there's a lot of, of, of research, the National Education Association says, that uh, in, in, in 2018, that there were over a million hours that students were taken out of class for dress code and other violations that they lost um, nationally, uh, that, that is lost seat time. Listen, since 2020, we we cannot afford in these last three years with interrupted learning uh, to uh, have a uh, have a concern around a bare midriff, uh, have a concern around spaghetti straps uh have false because uh, the data doesn't sh- uh, support this, have false concerns about uh, a child with a hoodie um, and, and the pushback is they're hiding their earpods or I don't know that individual and we're concerned about school security. Uh, and there are ways in which you know we can we, we can work with children on those things so that they can remove their earpods and and we learn a little bit more about you know school security. But I think that, We have to get at the depth and when you when you talk with staff that push back in that area, it really is around their values and beliefs. It really is around what they grew up understanding is appropriate in school. And then there's this false dichotomy around professionalism that if they are wearing the bare midriff, if they're wearing the spaghetti straps, if they're wearing the hoodie, if they're wearing the hat then this is not professional dress. And professional dress has morphed in the last decade. Uh, So when you go into corporations, professional dress looks very differently. And now with a workforce that almost 15% of them since the pandemic are still at home and working from home several times a a week, we have to be able to shift and, and adjust these things. So this December will be a year going into our dress code. Um, and we have not had any difficulty. We have not had this um, outburst of uh, concerns because uh, our young ladies um, have bare midriffs that that, that are out. Um, it has not distracted um, other individuals. And we haven't seen a lapse of uh, Uh, educational accountability in our classrooms because of this this dress, because we've been more open with dress. I think what it has done is it's because we did take, you know, student feedback um, in our middle schools and our high schools. What it has done is it's given agency to young people that when they talk with us about it two years ago, uh, and then we implemented it last year, that it shows them that adults are taking them seriously, uh, and we have less people in our um, we have less people in our guided suites changing. We are making less phone calls to working parents to try and come and bring a different set of clothing. Um, so that means more seat time. That means increased instruction. We're always trying to link these things to student achievement. Dave, I mean Absolutely. you 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 can't you cannot look at um, some of these and i call them draconian dress codes some of them in in school districts where you're taking kids out and they're out on an average of 15 to 30 minutes from from seat time we just cannot we, we cannot afford to do that that doesn't mean that our dress code lets everything happen you you cannot wear hate speech you have to be able to wear footwear that is appropriate for the classrooms that you are in you know there are there are there are limits that we need to be able to give and guidance that we need to give to young people and they will fall within that line but i think the age in which you know underlying from what we've heard about this professional dress around our values and beliefs or this this is not the way we want young ladies to appear we have to begin to interrogate that richly well what do you, what do you mean like, how do we want, how is it that young ladies and young men are supposed to appear? Is there some standard like the Common Core standards of the New Jersey student learning standards that we're given guidance on? So that and that can be a form of discrimination if you if you think about it. Yeah, so it is so we,
0: important to um to challenge our assumptions on that um on that issue, and um, it can make us a little bit uncomfortable to to say some of the things that we thought um were so incredibly important. Um, perhaps we need to step back and learn um, that those assumptions that we took for granted. Um, might not be necessary for students uh, to be able to function well and to and to um, achieve in our schools and to, you know, make sure we have a safe environment for everyone. Um, this is a topic that, of course, we could spend days on. There's so much to do. Let me just ask for one final thought from you, George. when it comes to school leaders and educators who recognize they may have implicit biases, recognize that there may have been times where they, unintentionally engaged in microaggressions. Uh, What advice do you have for a school leader, educator, um, who wants to grow and learn um, in this area um, and recognizes that there is room to grow?
1: Yeah, so I think you've got to own it. I think when you're on the, I I think when you are in a contentious uh, or about to get into a contentious conversation as a school leader with a parent, um, and let's say that this is a parent of a child of color, Uh, you have to be able to lead and lean into that conversation with, uh, and I do this even as a a principal of color, talking with another parent of color, that uh, if we're talking about discipline and this, let's say, you know, this could lead to in-school or out-of-school suspension, you have to lead with the facts that we're over-suspending Black and Brown children, especially males. And now... African American females are, are climbing up that that ladder, the research is showing us. You have to lead with that. You have to own that. You have to say that even if I'm not a part of that, I'm a part of a system. And there is a certain level of complicity that I own within that. And you you'll be surprised after you say that, the 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 how over the phone, or if it's Zoom or a meet or uh, Teams, and you're interacting or you're in person. How the, the how the climate around that um, conversation just changes, because people want ownership of those underlying concerns that they have around their children. They know that there are some differences, there are implicit bias and microaggressions that have been levied. That the system itself is complicit within. So you have to you have to own that when it's one on one and you make a mistake. Uh, one of the one of the things that the um, uh, I believe the Comprehensive Equity Project CEP uh, talks about is don't let 24 hours go before you approach that individual. So I've had I've had conversations, I've made statements, I've made colloquialisms, and I go back and I realize that colloquialism is 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 hurtful to to that demographic group. And I need to, and that person represents that demographic group. And within 24 hours, I need to go back and apologize. And oftentimes the person is unaware from a a implicit bias or microaggression standpoint. But if you have that awareness within 24 hours, it's incumbent upon you to do that um, as much as you can and to apologize and make restitution for that and acknowledge, and this is where restoration and restorative practices come in, That even if the person didn't recognize it or if they do recognize it and say, yeah, that was hurtful, but you're my supervisor, I'm not quite sure how to, you know, how I was going to engage you with that. You need to talk about how that broke relationship. I always am talking with staff about if you pull Dave out from the class, even though you're talking to him privately, there's a certain kind of way that Dave feels if he's 11, 12, 13 or 14 of being pulled out and being away from the class. You've, you've probably broken some trust and broken relationship at that point. So you need to be able to, how do you restore that back? How do you restore faith back with with that individual? Those three things are, are, are a lot, but if you start to intentionally do them one at a time, and then Dave, my most important thing, I think you've heard me say this, go get a thought partner, whether they're uh, your spouse, and, and spouses are great at this. They don't have to be in your, your educational field um, or uh, a significant other or someone outside of the field or someone who can give you hard critique and you value them to be able to do that and run things by them about these spaces. You ne- Everyone needs thought partners. To be able to push them harder in these areas because we don't actually actualize that we're talking about implicit bias so oftentimes yeah. it is not at the forefront of, of where we are and if we're in as school leaders we're in position of power so oftentimes those things may not come to us because of the power that we yield and the interactions that we're having with individuals they don't want to if it's a parent of a sixth grader and they just started don't want to get in that back and forth with me because we're going to be together for three more years they don't want any harm to come through teachers and the administrator to their child or their children so we have to be able to i guess that's the fourth thing you have to from a power and privilege standpoint you have to know where your power is and how you can help diffuse your power so that you're in the same footing with individuals that you supervise, that you are kind of moving forward with so that you can have those actual interactions and conversations and look around restoration and apologize and 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 feel like you can repair relationships. So maybe those four things.
0: Those are those are great tips. Let me just say um, as we are wrapping up this conversation, of course, this is the tip of the iceberg. Um, I do want to point our listeners to guidance that came out from the New Jersey Attorney General in August of 2023. Uh, So just before our recording, that really gets to issues of unintentional discrimination and the significant disparities that we see in student discipline in New Jersey and across the nation. Um, So within that guidance from the New Jersey Attorney General, there are some uh, very helpful strategies for moving forward. Um, And this is always a work in progress. um, And we do need to acknowledge that there's always work to be done on these topics. Um, so, George, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom uh, with us. For uh, those who are interested, uh, we do, through Legal One, have much more in depth training on these topics. As our listeners can tell, there's so much to say um, and so much to do in this field. Um, I want to thank you for sharing your expertise and, and for uh, being such a great partner with us at Legal One.
1: Thanks for the opportunity. I want to thank Legal One for all the incredible work that they're doing and the courageous work around implicit bias and microaggressions and trainings and supports for uh, individuals and for schools and, and for school districts. You're doing incredible work and I look forward to the next time that we can talk. All right, Dave.
0: And thank you so much, George. And for our listeners, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. We do urge you to take the time to listen to our full series of issues related to equity schools in the law in our podcast. And I also just want to thank our sponsors one more time, Arthur J. Gallagher, for the wonderful support of this podcast series. Be safe, be well, and we look forward to having you with us for future episodes of the Legal One podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.